As Americans, we tend to think in terms of individuality rather than systems. But every part of life usually has some system that is attached to the individual freedoms that we enjoy. And so our lives are part of a bigger system, and usually it's a system that organizes, administrates, or energizes some of the things that we desire to do. So if you've been following the news over the last several weeks since that first shooting in Buffalo, you know that there has been this debate that has been going on about the Second Amendment as well as gun control. And it seems as though the systems that we buy into or we believe in or we want to defend are the things that we fail to think through or to change or to even budge a little bit. So what often happens is people take sides on different issues socially, and as they do so, they tend to dismiss other people who don't see it the same way. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to protect the systems that we believe in, that it has certain costs to it. Sometimes nothing ever gets done. Sometimes there's never any progress that moves forward on it. I think that's what we're seeing taking place again. So we have had Buffalo, and we've had uh, Uvalde, Texas, and, and we have had uh, the shooting in Oklahoma, and it just seems to go on and on, and it seems as though we break into two camps, and we defend the system as it is, rather than having honest and serious conversation about what to do with this particular problem. So what often happens in the political world also happens in the religious world. When there is a particular belief, often it develops into a system of theology that people will tend to fight about rather than seek unity and do the greater good of carrying out the kingdom of God. It seems as though there is one ring that rules them all in the minds of many Christians, and that one system they think has, they have it all figured out, and they protect it at all costs. And so when we talk about this protection that many uh, believers um, stand firm on, they think that they are defending the faith, when in reality they're just defending a system and as a result of that, they doubled down on that system rather than having good conversation. But occasionally, there will come a time in our lives when we see that the faith that we desire to have in our lives just is not working much anymore. And as a result of that, uh, what we find is that we begin to think anew about what I think is true about all systems of theology. And here it is. Here's the take. All systems of theology have holes in them. None of them are perfect. All of them fall short. And maybe the worst part of this whole thing is when people use the Bible as a proof text to defend their system. And so many times people don't see their own shortcomings. They don't see how close-minded they are because they have been too busy in the process of trying to protect a particular set of beliefs rather than continuing to give uh, yielding and surrender to where the Spirit of God might be going in the next wave of history. So the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost and the Spirit 
allows us to evolve and allows us to adapt. And so we started this series last Sunday that I am calling Counterweight, and I told you that way back when I was a kid, many moons ago, there was a game out called Tippet, and it has three sides to it, okay? And the idea is you have a particular color disc, and as you spin the disc, you remove those color discs without tipping the guy and throwing them off. So when we think about faith, there is this tri-sided element to it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we seem to be overweighted on Father and Son, and we really don't dial into what the Holy Spirit might be doing, not only in our day, but maybe in the future as well. And so what we said last week is faith evolves. Everything in life evolves as well as our faith. So what you believe today is not the same as what you believed 20 years ago. You are always changing. You are always evolving. You're always learning new things. But you also have to adapt as well. And that's what I want to talk about today, is I want to talk about adapting our faith. And so today, we understand that there is this man who is caught up in a system. We read the passage of Scripture a little bit earlier. A man by the name of Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious professional. He is an individual that spends a lot of his time thinking about faith, thinking about the scriptures, thinking about all of these things. And yet, God is doing something new and real and powerful in the person of Jesus. And as a result, it piques the interest of this man named Nicodemus to seek Jesus out at night. So contextually, John chapter 3, even though we're familiar with John 3.16, that's a very popular verse, contextually, this is set in the context of a man who is finding that his religion as a Jewish Pharisee is coming up short. And because it's coming up short, he's observing Jesus, and as he observes Jesus, what he finds is that Jesus is going to challenge the way he's looking at his life and looking at his faith. And Nicodemus will have to take a step forward and to adapt his thinking to the new information that Jesus is giving. So we said last week that when we look at our entire life, we move through stages of faith from simplicity to complexity to perplexity to finally harmonizing with the fact that there's a lot of mystery in life that we will never ever figure out. There's a lot of mysteries in faith that we will never figure out, but we move forward anyways because we trust in the person of Christ and we learn from his teachings. And so today I want to talk about how faith adapts because it is not dogma. Now, when I use the word dogma, one of the things that you'll find is that dogma is a system that organizes, administrates, and energizes something that is believed to be true. However, dogma often can become, as you see on the screen here, detrimental and dangerous. When you defend a system at all costs, you're not willing to adapt, you're not willing to change, you're not willing to adjust. And as a result of that, it's very easy 
when there are other people who don't see it quite the same way as you do or I do, to dismiss their viewpoint, to just then say, oh, that person's off base, rather than say, what can I learn from this individual? What can I learn from their life story? What can I learn from the fact that they see life different because maybe they're of a different culture, maybe they're of a different ethnicity, maybe they speak a different language, maybe there's a different custom, maybe there's different idioms, maybe there's all of these things that we can learn from. So religious dogma is defending the faith in such a way that we refuse to adapt, we refuse to change, and so we are staying in this particular uh, sequence somewhere between simplicity and complexity. And that is, I just want to believe it. The Bible says it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. Well, the Bible is a very diverse book and talks a lot about different things, and as I'll mention in a moment, if you took the Bible literally from front to back, you'll find that it can be a very dangerous book because there's things that are recorded in there that you certainly don't want to imitate, okay? I'll come back to that in a second. So religious dogma is, though, framed as defending the faith. But in reality, it's the refusal to change, and because there's a refusal to change, Often evangelism is simply a form of colonization, trying to get other people to believe exactly as you believe. So the Bible then is used as a proof text for defending that system, and when that happens, then all kinds of problems occur. So how many different denominations do we have within Protestant Christianity? There's hundreds of thousands. So every time there's a little disagreement about something in a very complex book that is set in a different culture and in a different context, and it's thousands of years old, instead of taking the wisdom that comes from that, learning from it, we begin to defend a particular viewpoint, and then that person that doesn't believe that says, well, I'm leaving, I'm out of here, rather than engaging, rather than embracing community, rather than embracing love, as Jesus told us, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, what we tend to do is we break off, and thousands of different denominations break off, and you know what the danger is? They think they're the only ones that are right. That's what's funny about the whole thing. Thousands of different denominations, they're the right ones. Well, here is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes, and I read a pretty lengthy passage of scripture for us this morning. Nicodemus, this man who is part of a religious system that he has been indoctrinated in, he is an individual that's part of the structure of this system. But there's something unique about Nicodemus. He has an interest in Jesus, while the rest of the Gospel of John tells us that the Pharisees wanted not only to arrest Jesus, but execute him. When you read the whole Gospel of John, all the Pharisees are threatened by Jesus because they're trying to protect their system of power. They're trying to protect their money. So Jesus makes a statement to him that is quite fascinating. He says, you can't get into the kingdom of God within your system. You must be born again. Now, that particular phrase has been used to say, you need to say the sinner's prayer or you're going to go to heaven, uh, or not going to go to heaven. 
That's not the subject matter here. Nicodemus said this, he says, we know that you're a teacher from God and no one can do the things that you do apart from the presence of God. Now notice he says we. Now that's interesting. Not I, we. There are other people that began to think through their faith as well. They began to think through their religious system and they began to look at Jesus and Jesus is saying, Listen, the things that I do show to you that I come from above. How many gallons of water do I need to change into wine before you recognize that I am divinely empowered? And so that was in John chapter 2. And yet Jesus will often push the religious leaders who have this control over the masses. So also in John chapter 2, Jesus goes in to the temple and he turns over tables where they have been overcharging people who have come to worship and want to offer a sacrifice. And he says, how dare you uh, take this place that is to be a house of prayer for all people and turn it into a marketplace? And then Jesus will say, destroy this temple, the building, and I will rebuild it in three days. Now that got them afraid. And at that point, they began to say, this guy's got to go. Now, he wasn't referring to brick and mortar. What was he referring to? He was referring to his own body as the temple, as the presence of God. And if he is killed, it will be raised again in three days. So it's a vague reference to the resurrection. And what we find taking place is Nicodemus has problems with this metaphor. You must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is a good Jew. And as a good Jew, he will push back on Jesus' teaching. He says, you mean I've got to climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus, I think, probably has a chuckle out of the side of his mouth because he knows that Nicodemus knows that you can't go back into your mother's womb and come out a second time. But Nicodemus, as a good Jewish rabbi, and in rabbinic fashion, is going to push back in such a way so as Jesus will clarify what he's talking about. And as a result of that, what Jesus says here in John chapter 3 is you can't get to the new life that God wants to do inside of your heart and inside your life by holding fast to a system and negating the presence and influence of the Spirit of God. So Jesus is telling us this third uh, personage that's represented in the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit is about changing us and moving us forward and finding a better way to live life. And so Nicodemus' traditions, Nicodemus' religious uh, system is something that is getting in the way. Now, he says to Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the spirit is like the wind. It blows wherever it wants to blow. Sometimes it blows this way, sometimes it blows that way. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't control the spirit. You can't control the spirit. The spirit moves us forward. Now, I sympathize with Nicodemus a lot because you and I would be just as frustrated with Jesus as Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is mentioned two other times later in the Gospel of John. 
And he comes around and he begins to become a follower of the teachings of Jesus. And the very last reference to Nicodemus, we find Nicodemus taking the body of Jesus and preparing it for burial. So somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit began to do such a powerful work in his life that what we find is he's willing to let go of this system that has held him for so many years, probably from the time he was a small boy. And Jesus is not saying by any means here that the system doesn't have good elements to it. What he is saying is that this system has its shortcomings though. And you must adapt in order to understand that God continues to move forward in this world. And so what we find is that being born of the Spirit, letting go of what is familiar, is a very difficult thing to do. And all of us are born into a family where we are raised with certain ways of looking at life, and you'll find that even those things are hard to let go of. And they creep back in to the way we look at life and sometimes you say something or do something and you go, where did that come from? And you look back and you go, oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> thanks, Mom. I was kind of conditioned to look at life this particular way. And so these systems have holes in them and yet Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will continue to move people forward provided that they are open to adapting their outlook. I don't look at my faith the same way I did 40 years ago. I don't look at my faith the same way I did 30 or 20 or 10 years ago or even five years ago. You see, I'm changing. And as I change, God's Spirit is continuing to do a work in my heart. You see, all of us have systems that we want to defend and why is it that we want to defend those systems? Because that's where we feel safe. Does that make sense? That's where we feel safe. And it's that assurance that drives away fear and the unfamiliar. And sometimes God will push us in various ways. And at that moment, we are either open or we're closed. And if we're closed, we'll try to fortify the system because of our fear rather than being open. Now, I went through eight years of post-high school education, my BA and then my master's degree, and not once, not one time did I ever, ever hear one of my professors say that this system of the schools that I was attending have holes in it, okay? I have never heard that one time. There's always a doubling down and a defending of the system or a turning of things one way or the other to try to show that the system doesn't have holes. Neither have I ever heard one of my professors say, hey, hold your theological beliefs loosely because you will change in the years to come. Don't hold it so tight that you then become a jerk to other people around you because you think you're the only one that is right. It's really easy to keep doubling down so much that you refuse to think and feel and doubt what you have been told. People do this all the time, not just in religion, but with where they get their news. 
Sometimes there's only one viewpoint that people have. They only trust one channel or one particular individual in what they say. And doubling down and defending something that has obvious flaws is not the way forward. This factors into the whole Second Amendment and gun control thing that we're talking about and a variety of other things. Systems will do that to you. It will cause you to double down because of your fear of the unknown and the mystery of what's in that system or possibly the fear of being wrong. So this fear creates a lot of boogeymen. Are you following? There's always somebody that's the scapegoat that we throw our fear upon. And so systems often use fear to force people to close their eyes rather than being open to the Holy Spirit. So I was thinking a little bit about a Jesuit priest, his name was John Cavanaugh, and he went to see Mother Teresa. He was full of a dark night of the soul. He had all kinds of questions. He was reflecting on his own livelihood and calling, and he wanted clarity. And as he wanted clarity, he prayed and prayed and prayed, and Cavanaugh, uh, who was a moral philosopher at St. Louis University, said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go visit Mother Teresa. And she will give me clarity on some of the things that I am thinking about. And so she goes, and I mean, he goes, and he visits Mother Teresa. And as he goes to visit Mother Teresa, um, he's, uh, Mother Teresa says to him, well, what can I do for you? And he says, well, you can pray for me. And she goes on and says, well, what can I pray for you about? And he says, well, pray that I have clarity, which is why he's there in the first place. And she makes a statement. Mother Teresa says to John Cavanaugh, no, I will not do that. And he says, why, you little... No, (laughs) he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. But... He does think upon what she said. I will not pray clarity for you. Clarity is the crutch of the Christian. But I will pray trust for you that your trust will increase. Pretty powerful statement. What we find is that uh, John Cavanaugh wanted to go have an easy answer to something. And life is not wired that way, is it? You have to stretch. You have to wrestle And you at times have to say, this is mysterious and I don't get it. Well, what I find is that when we hold our beliefs loosely, not that we don't have beliefs, but that we're open to what we believe or change or adapt, we find freedom. And if you want your faith to survive, you're going to have to learn to adapt. Because if you don't learn to adapt, that game tip it, you're going to go flying off the edge. And so here's what I want you to think about. Your system, my system, as much as you love it, as much as I might love it, has holes in it. God does not want us to be holden to a system. He wants us to be holden to a Savior. Does that make sense? To Jesus. And so we will be transformed not by a system, but by a person. I love what Richard Rohr said In one of his meditations, it's called A New Way of Seeing, A New Way of Being. He says this, 
As long as you can deal with life in universal abstractions, you can pretend that the usual binary ways of thinking is true. But once you deal with a specific or concrete reality, it is always, without exception, a mixture of darkness and light, death and life, good and bad, attractive and unattractive. We who are trained in philosophy and theology have all kinds of trouble with that because our preferred position is to deal with life in terms of abstractions and universals. We want it to be true on paper. Whether it is totally true in concrete situations is less important or even denied. This is what the dualistic mind does because it does not know how to hold creative tensions. It actually confuses rigid thinking or black and white thinking with faith itself. In my opinion, faith is exactly the opposite, which is precisely why we call it faith and not logic, end quote. So adapting one's faith occurs over the course of a lifetime due to internal spiritual or emotional factors and the observation of the experiences around us. Now, Jesus himself adapted. Did you know that? In the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not going to turn there, I think you're familiar with this enough, okay, that you can reference it in your mind. In Matthew 5 through 7, you have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus was raised, like Nicodemus, as a Torah-observing Jewish person. But he understood something, that the law had to be adapted to a new context. So you can keep the letter of the law, right? Do not murder. But Jesus said, Hey, I want to tell you something. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you that if you have anger in your heart, it's as if you have murdered someone inside your mind already. What is Jesus doing? He's adapting to his own day and age what is needed, the thoughts and the teachings. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He says this several times in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. And then he says something quite fascinating. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, how is it that you fulfill the intentions of what God has given in previous uh, generations? Well, you learn to adapt it, and it is fulfilled in you as you apply it in your life, in your situation, in your context. And James, the brother of Jesus, says, listen, the royal law is the law of love. And if you want to fulfill the law, the way you do it is by loving other people from the depths of your being and giving other people your very best. What is Jesus doing here? He's doing what is called Jewish midrash. Jewish midrash is a, a way of interpreting the scripture that says, well, that's great that it was said way back then, but what does it mean now? What does it mean today? What does it mean for me? And so the Jews have this understanding of creative tension, and when they go to the text, they don't leave it back in the days of Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus. They bring it forward and say, how does this apply now? How does this apply to me in my situation here? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's adapting the law to his own day and his own age, and the fulfillment is how to keep the law alive and practical and relevant in a very different world. Now, 
I mentioned earlier that if you kept everything in the Bible literally, it's very dangerous. You know why? There are things in the Old Testament that justify genocide. There are things in the Old Testament that justify hatred. There are things in the Old Testament where it was so wildly out of control that God says, I am so sorry that I even created mankind. There are things that men and women did in the Old Testament that a law had to be put in place in the book of Leviticus. You've heard the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Did you know that's not giving you license to go take it out on someone? It's actually trying to control an out-of-control situation where violence is, hey, I, I accidentally bruised your arm and you've come and you have taken my arm off with a sword or something. No, 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 no. A just society, a fair society understands that even if there is some type of uh, um, punishment uh, that is needed, you don't go off the rails. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a figure of speech saying you can't go overboard that if I accidentally kill your cow that you're going to come back and kill my wife. Does that make sense? Okay. So... If you're going to take the Bible literally, I mean, if you're going to take it literally, from front end to back, I will be glad to visit you in prison. Because that's where you're going to end up. Okay? But Jesus says, you have heard it said. You see, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth would justify murder. And Jesus says, but I say to you, even if you have anger in your heart, that's where the root is. Your desire for revenge it's the hatred that's there. So, having said all of that, I love this. This is a poem of Emily Dickinson that says, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. You don't change overnight. I don't change overnight. We adapt slowly. That's who we are as human beings. And the same thing is true in religious faith. We adapt slowly. We change slowly over a course of time. And as a result of that, we must understand that what we read in the Bible is often more descriptive than it is prescriptive. If you will try to obey it literally, like I said, we will visit you in prison, okay? What we need to understand is our time requires good thinking, open thinking, governed by the royal law of love that James says in his epistle in James chapter 2, verse 8. So let me say this as I close. Uh, worship team can go ahead and start to come back up. It seems that one of the challenges of interpreting the Bible is avoiding the temptation of squeezing the Bible into a singular framework. If the Bible is supposed to be a moral guide in any given situation, why does it take so much work to get to the point? Because it's a book that has been written over a long time by different authors and in different contexts. As one scholar says, the Bible is too untidy, too sprawling, and too boisterous to be tamed by a neat system of thought. 
In fact, there's a lot of irrelevant stuff that you'll find in the Bible, right? Things that don't pertain to us anymore, like the food laws in Leviticus and different things like that. They just don't pertain to us as it did back in that day. So I'm going to ask that you stand with me, and as we close our time together, I want you to keep this in mind as my closing idea. An adapting faith puts wisdom, wonder, and the will to love one another at the core of what it means to believe. Let me say that again. An adapting faith puts wisdom, wonder, and the will to love one another at the core of what it means to believe. Amen and amen.